It's a funny place to be, stuck in a seemingly mundane world with an inner knowing that the universe is so much more than our mortal minds can comprehend. Yet we all have the capacity to know peace and our oneness with the wholeness of life. And through these interviews, discussions, and reflections, it is my intention to share this possibility. I'm Ryan Kurzak, and this is the Kriya Yoga Podcast. Okay, so welcome everyone back to the Kriya Yoga Podcast. I'm here with another very special guest, Marty Wutke, who is also a minister of Center for Spiritual Awareness and a student of Roy Eugene Davis. And Marty is the founder and CEO of the Wutke Institute of Neurotherapy. So thank you for being uh, with me today, uh, Marty. My pleasure. So there's so much that I would love to talk to you about. And to get into it, my first question would be, um, what is it that you do? Tell me a little bit about your work and what, what you're up to and how you got into that. Okay. Uh, okay. Well, um, it's a long story. We have to uh, rewind the clock time here to, to, to give a little bit of a, uh, a foundation. Yes. So while I was living at Center for Spiritual Awareness back in the early 80s, um, you know, studying meditation, doing my sadhana, and so on. I, uh, I, I got the idea with Roy's, um, uh, support to go to a local hospital to see what they were doing with drug and alcohol treatment because I was interested in that. And I, I checked out the hospital and I started initially by volunteering there to teach meditation. And what happened rather quickly was the meditation started to uh, produce some significant results with the patients that were there in the hospital. Generally, they were there for about a month stay. Um, so the medical director there in the hospital was impressed, and he actually knew Roy, knew of Roy, and um, they asked me if I would consider coming uh, on the staff of the hospital to, uh, to take the meditation uh, and make it a part of their treatment program. So um, I did, and uh, within several weeks, I, I did realize that these people were, you know, some of them had significant issues from depression to uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome, uh, you know, along with their drug and alcohol addiction. In fact, that was often the reason for their drug and alcohol addiction. Eating disorders, head injuries, and so on. So I realized that I needed uh, a way to... You know, I hate to say speed up the meditation learning process, but in effect, that's what I needed. And right. I talked to Roy about it, and he told me to go to, uh, you know, look at some of the research and visit the Himalayan Institute because he knew they did uh, biofeedback there. It was up in, at that time in Holmesdale, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Had some very good physicians there. So biofeedback then was simply a way to help people learn how to get in touch with their bodies and then to shift physiologic mechanisms so that the meditation process could uh, unfold uh, a little easier. Um, very quickly, though, I, I, my research showed me that the key to what happens in meditation in terms of the physiology of the body uh, appears to be changes that occur in the brain, and in particular, brain waves. And brain waves are those electrical signals that uh, our brains give off. You know, if you were to hook yourself up to a light bulb, you, your brain basically gives off enough electricity to uh, light up a 40-watt light bulb. <laughs> so I, was, I became fascinated by that, and there was a bit of research, not that much back in the early 80s about it. Most of it was done by transcendental meditation. But there were a couple of other very interesting research studies as well. Um, so there was something, a type of biofeedback, a specialty called brainwave biofeedback or neurofeedback. And I immediately uh, was attracted to that talk. Again, talked to Roy about the efficacy. And he he supported me 100% to give it a try. So brainwave biofeedback was a way to, um, I found, was a way to show people what their brains are doing so that they can begin to change them in the direction of more quiet, uh, more calmness, uh, mental chatter going down, and so on. Because many people inadvertently when they meditate, at least I found back then, in this particular population, many people inadvertently, um, when they when they try to meditate, <clears throat> there's actually 
patterns in the brain that uh, keep supporting their trauma, a lot of mm. resistance patterns. So my job was to begin to help people to see those patterns and to change them. You can actually change what the electro electrical activity in your brain is up to if you're given the appropriate feedback. So I started doing that in the hospital. We got very significant results right away. And neurofeedback caught on like uh, wildfire around the world uh, very quickly. And now, I mean, it's uh, everywhere you look, you can find a neurofeedback practitioner practicing. Mm -hmm. um, neurofeedback is different uh, depending on the practitioner you go to, uh, which is one of the uh, little drawbacks right now. There's there's uh, several schools of thought. But in, in essence, um, what I do now is, um, is, is neurotherapy. And although most neurofeedback you see out there when you look up practitioners is geared towards different problems and disorders, like, uh, for instance, attention deficit disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, addiction, depression, anxiety disorders, and so on. So most neurofeedback is geared toward this. But what I'm trying to do is sort of a, um, going back to my roots and the beginning where I was doing neurofeedback primarily to help people uh, um, get into the meditative states. And, you know, that's always been my agenda with, with, with what I do. But, you know, I get people coming to me for all kinds of issues and problems because my expertise is on the brain. But I'm always trying to guide people back towards the meditation model. So I have a, um, a clinic out here in Northern California, uh, mid, I'm sorry, Central Coast, Santa Barbara, California. Also may um, open something back up in Atlanta because that's, you know, I was there for quite a while too. But um, I do research now. Um, my wife, Stella, is a, is a um, neuroscientist and a cognitive psychologist and happens to be a Kriya Yogi as well. Right. From Austria. So we're working on a book. Um, and again, this, this was with, uh, with Roy's blessing. Um, you know, people are very much into technology nowadays. You know, we know that. Right. So, so trying to assist meditators, uh, you know, there's, as we all know, those of us at least who study yoga, there's no instant way to enlighten it. There's not going to be a drug. There's not a technique. There's, there's nothing. It's, a, it's a, a matter of grace and, um, you know, a person's intensity. Right. Uh, but there are, there are these, these tools that we have available now that we can, um, help that process move along. And it's quite fascinating, uh, to watch people go through this. So, you know, I treat, I treat all ages, people from all walks of life and so on and so on. But, um, essentially, as I said a minute ago, Ryan, my goal is to get back to this, uh, more, uh, meditative spiritual model and, and make that my, that my primary, um, emphasis now. Right. Okay. So when you said you, you first got involved in all of this, um, you know, you were, you were going to a, a hospital. I'm assuming that was around the Clayton area where CSA was. Yeah. Just seven miles from CSA, there was a very plush, uh, two hospitals actually, Woodridge Hospital and Ridgecrest Hospital. Woodridge was a, a, quite a, a, a and it was like a resort, uh -huh. kind of stuck away, tucked away there in the mountains. And a few, a few of the CSA people worked there um, uh, in different capacities. So I felt, you know, it felt kind of at home. As I said, the medical director knew Roy. Uh -huh. I, 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 it was, it was, uh, it was um, a, a profound coincidence to be quite honest. <laughs> right. Well, that, 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 let's rewind a little bit further then, um, because we definitely are going to talk about uh, the work you do and how it relates to Kriya Yoga and meditation in general. But um, many of the people who are listening, you know, they are uh, either just learning about Kriya Yoga or are on the path themselves. And um, I always find it interesting how, how people get, how people find it, Kriya Yoga and what drew them to Kriya Yoga. So what was your introduction to Kriya Yoga and how did you come to um, accept it as you know, a valid way for awakening and clarifying your consciousness? Sure. Um, I, think, I think my story is, is similar to many people's stories uh, that we hear. And primarily, I was, I was, um, you know, I was born in New York uh, and always had a, a very strong philosophical and spiritual um, uh, attraction 
mm-hmm. raised in the Roman Catholic Church, but never quite bought into the stuff there. Um, and, you know, some of the interesting things occurred in my life that we hear about. I very early on saw a, a book on Hatha Yoga and immediately was very impressed with myself because I could do lotus posture and went around <laughs> telling everybody I knew how to do yogurt. <laughs> so my mother told, told me that uh, years ago. So, um, you know, that, that went through the uh, typical uh, childhood, very shy and introverted. But um, And then uh, being from New York in the, in, the, in the early 70s, unfortunately, fell into some of the adolescent um, misbehaviors that some of us do and got into, you know, running with the wrong crowd and drugs and alcohol and all that stuff. And then right. finally made my way through that and uh, started to have um, some glimpses of, of spiritual experiences that were just sort of coming out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And by the time I was uh, in my early 20s, I realized that, um, you know, it's all about finding a spiritual path and jumping on that spiritual path with both feet. So I was sort of led to um, attend Life Chiropractic University in Georgia. Hmm. And uh, sure enough, one of my classmates had lived at CSA before he, he became a, uh, a student at Life Chiropractic University. And I was at his apartment one day, and there on his mantelpiece was that beautiful picture of Paramahansa Yogananda where he has the garland of flowers around his neck and he's sort of effulgent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw it and I said, I don't know if I saw it before that, but I said, that that's an incarnation of love. And he was mm-hmm. like, whoa. And he said, well, guess what? Um, <laughs> Roy Eugene Davis is going to be here this weekend. I think you should come meet him. And I, and I, and I was like, well, who's Roy Eugene Davis? <laughs> uh, he was lecturing at a uh, religious science church in Atlanta, and, you know, uh, this is one of those experiences that stand out strongly in my mind. I believe this was 1982, and I knew, at the second I saw him, I knew that that was my guru, uh, and uh, Jerry, this was Jerry Brusak, by the way, mm-hmm. the way this past, uh, this past, earlier this year, right. a wonderful fellow chiropractor, and um, he introduced me to Roy. And Roy tapped me on, you know, I'll never forget, tapped me on the back three times and said, come up and see me. And I took that as a, you know, okay, I'll do it. So uh, for about a year, every Sunday I went up and, and just meditated there at CSA with Roy, if he, if he was there or if he was not there. And I would just drive up from Atlanta, where I lived in Marriott, about a one and a half, two hour drive, meditate for half an hour and drive back. Roy saw that I was very committed and very... um intense on what I was doing. I was unhappy with the direction uh, my life was going in, though I didn't feel like chiropractic was where I was supposed to be. So uh, the long and short of it was he asked me if I wanted to live and work there at CSA because hmm. I was in this transition phase. Uh, so I did, and that, that's how that's how I got there. Hmm. And, um, and then, you know, just did the, the sadhana there at the center and got to see Roy uh, Daly, and uh, I was his official driver back and forth to the airport, (laughs) uh, you know, travel, which he did quite a bit then. So I got, uh, I really was able to um, absorb lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of information, wonderful stories, and, you know, most of it uh, we've all heard in his talks, but, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, every time you hear it, it sounds like it's uh, the first time. Right. So... So that, and then, you know, that, that was, um, that was what sort of started the whole process off. Well, so, okay. So I, I follow what you're doing here. And, um, I'm trying to imagine back in the eighties and this idea of, uh, neurofeedback. And, you know, I've been playing around with, uh, M waves and the muse and all these sorts of things. You know, what were, what did you have available to you to be able to study these things? Uh, there was some nice equipment uh, that was invented by a fellow in New York, Adam Crane, who was a uh, long gone, but he developed some very nice <clears throat> five-channel EEG equipment and some very decent software where you could do pretty much any kind of training you wanted to, from alpha training to something called uh, synchrony training, alpha theta training, beta training, um, and and see what what I found very early on is that, although and although we'd like for this not to be true, 
there's really no one size fits all model in regard to training the brain to reach meditative states. You have to see where a person is starting from. Right. Like everybody who meditates, um, you know, is going to have different inclinations toward different styles or techniques of meditation. So you have to see where a person is starting from, what their brain is actually doing. And then you can sort of create a hierarchy of first we need to, you know, and it's like the, the eight, the eight steps. You know, first you may have to learn how to relax. Then you may have to learn how to concentrate. Then you may have to learn how to do sensory withdrawal. You know, all, all, all of those, uh, those, um, all of those are neurophysiologic, uh, changes that have to occur in the brain. This is what Yogananda referred to in a, in a statement he made that was highlighted in that documentary movie Awake, where he says the, the spine and the brain are the altar of God. Well, that he was being quite literal there that, that transformation has to occur. And it is neurological transformation, and Kriya Yoga just happens to be one of the one of the faster routes to that process. Right. And um, you know, I I tried to map that out. Well, how, exactly, how does that work? What does it mean? What's the brain doing? What's the changes that occur? So as technology improves and we become more sophisticated, we we see that there are neurophysiologic changes that the, the the brain and the nervous system of the meditator goes through that that all build I mean one's a foundation and one builds on top of that and so on and so on and so on. And yes, it's true. You've got to have a very strong foundation before you can move on to some higher levels. So Right. And so by by these foundations, you know, you referenced the the eight limbs of yoga, you know, with with asana for example, being able to sit still and then the pranayama circulating or maybe helping oneself relax and then internalizing attention and concentrating. These are all things that have um, like reference points with what you study. With exactly. a, okay. Yeah. One, one thing I stress because many people on the spiritual path run into this is there's a part of the brain we call the limbic system. And it's not a part of the brain. It's actually a system of, and a series of connections. But the limbic system is, you know, if you if you want to look at the brain this way, it's it's more of the primitive fight or flight, fight flight or free flee responses and so on. Mm-hmm. And it it regulates uh, the autonomic nervous system, which is which has the sympathetic parasympathetic, so the gas pedal and the brakes of the nervous system. These parts of the brain have to be um, settled down. You could you could even think of them as associated with lower chakras. Uh, survival, um, instinct, um, uh, territoriality, mm-hmm. and, and, and all of those, you know, what we call these lower chakra things. Uh, so those parts of the brain, <clears throat> what we find is that it's important for them to be um, regulated. And, and things like asanas and pranayamas and certain meditation techniques are really uh, uh, integral to, to getting the body and the nervous system to calm and quiet. And if you don't, you, you run the risk of, um, moving too quickly. Hmm. And, you know, that's sort of the risk in people wanting to take micro doses of LSD to, or ayahuasca to experience higher states of consciousness. Right. Nervous system's not ready for it. And, and you can get into all kinds of problems with that sort of thing. So, so, you know, and I've, I've often said this in, in presentations that I've given that the science of yoga, the, the, the rishis and, and uh, sages and yogis who, um, who uh, investigated these methods and techniques, they were the true neurophysiologists. Mm-hmm. They were the ones who saw, well, you know, we don't have fancy technology and fancy equipment, but guess what? When you breathe this way, when you do this posture, when you practice this particular meditation technique, guess what? It's changing your brain. Right. Well, that, that brings me to another question. When I was at uh, CSA a few weeks ago, um, leading this retreat, and one of the participants asked me, because uh, I was speaking from Roy's book, the, the Science of Self-Realization, she said, okay, well, I see it says the Science of Self-Realization. She wanted me to describe to her how is it that it's a science. And she was asking because um, I think she's from Sweden. And she said, 
you know, when she brings that up, people are going to ask her, okay, well, yes, you say it's a science. Well, what does that mean? And my response was, well, that it's a repeatable process. But my question to you would be, based on what you've learned, you being a practitioner, you having all this access to uh, scientific technology to study these things, how would you say Kriya Yoga is a science? How would you answer that question? Um, I think your response was perfect. Um, number one, it's a repeatable process. But number two, you know, and, and we're still working on this, um, it, it, to, to confirm and verify the changes that are occurring uh, in the nervous system, whether the, you see thickening in the frontal lobes um, or you see these changes in MRIs or brainwave patterns, and then correlating that with the changes in the individual, in the individual, I think that's the science of it. Mm. Um, and even you know when I when I started all this some 35 years ago, I mentioned the TM medis, med, uh, transcendental meditation studies. I also happened to find a study from the mid 50s from France by a, a researcher by the name of Gestalt, G-A-S-T-A-U-T. And they identified some significant EEG changes in a certain uh, population of meditators, and it just so happened that they were Kriya yogis. Mm. So, so, and then, and then all this information a few years ago came out from Richard Davidson, who did some research on uh, the Dalai Lama's advanced uh, Tibetan meditators, and they saw the same thing. And it's higher frequency brainwave activity. And then, sure enough, as I've measured some Kriya yogis, I see the same thing. So, the, the, you know, that's confirmation. And that is science. That right. We can see these things that occur in the brain. It's a confirmation. And, mm -hmm. um, and also, uh, you know, it's, it is objective information that we can take. And maybe right now it's hypothetical. But in the future, I'm sure we'll be able to show uh, more clearly what's going on. Right. And so with what you've been doing, because that was another interest of mine, um, have you been able to study create, create people who are doing Kriya Yoga meditation specifically? Yes. And what has that, I mean, has that, has it given the same results as other types of meditation or what have you found? What have you seen with that? No, I think, um, you know, if you can visualize brain um, and the, the, uh, the higher uh, um, more evolved areas of the brain, the higher brain cortex. What we see with Kriya Yogis is, um, is this cortical uh, excitation. So it, it's almost like a magnification of energy, and this corresponds to the, the brain waves that I just mentioned in these right. other studies called gamma. And gamma is a, is a you know, you say it's around 40 hertz, but it's really a broader range of activity than that. But when you, when you see gamma, uh, it, it's indicative of of what we call a, a uh, binding uh, binding activity. So it's considered a, a binding frequency, where where you see the whole brain sort of coming together. And like whenever you have an aha moment or a realization, or you recognize somebody, or you learn some something. There's usually a burst of gamma activity, along with other frequencies. But the gamma appears to be pulling things together. Hmm. But with, with the, I think with Kriya Yoga and, and particularly the Kriya Yoga Pranayama, you know, the main basic technique, it seems to be a, a true activator of, of the cortex. And, uh, and as far as I can tell over time, uh, doing it, uh, doing the practice of it regularly, it is indicative of increasing this communication in the cortex. And, um, you know, another way you could also look at it is, is the, a gamma. You see a lot of gamma, that person's brain and their consciousness is very present. It's not basing uh, information on past data. It's basing information on what is occurring now. Hmm. Uh, so it is, uh, It again, I think it has a, a lot to do with... Um, the style of technique we, we practice, which of course is, is based on Kriya, but also, as Roy always said, um, this is attentive. This isn't daydreaming. This isn't trying to space out. This isn't trying to, you know, go off um, into some 
uh, other realm. This is very attentive and focused meditation. And I, I think that's I think that's the difference, or at least helps produce some of the difference we see in Kriya Yogi. Right. And so that focus then, because that was one of my other questions, I think you answered it, but the focus then was on um, doing the actual Kriya Pranayama and you know, kind of paying attention to the circulation w- within the spine. Right. And when you have witnessed these things, is it when they are actually doing that process or is it after they've completed it and they're, they're maybe sitting there in, in the silence or is it both? Yeah, it's, it's, it's after. Okay. It's a generalized change. You know, it, it, the brain changes. Hmm. Uh, and it, it, it is, um, it is you know, like, okay, so Rich, uh, uh, Richie, Richie Davidson's research on the Tibetan meditators was was very straightforward. Their brains are different all the time. Hmm. And, um, it, like their gamma is two or threefold the normal. Um, so they're living in a particular state. Uh, Roy's Roy Z E G was that way too. I was you know very pleasantly <laughs> to see that. Uh, you know, in fact, I'll never forget. I did uh, his E E G once, and then just to to test it out, I sent it off to another. A clinician who is is very familiar with these patterns, and she emailed me back, not knowing who he was or anything at all, and said, "This person's in universal consciousness." <laughs> I said, wow. Yeah. So it was very, very, uh, very nice confirmation. How does with, with what you have access to? And I think many years ago, I might have actually emailed you asking you this question. Um, the things that are available to people on the market, you know, I mentioned the M wave, which I know isn't neurofeedback, and then the, the Muse headband. And there was another one that seems to be quite a bit more complicated that you have to like wet the, uh, you know, wet the sensors and put it on your head. Um, are, are there anything that's available to people that they can just buy without spending, you know, twenty to thirty thousand dollars on some kind of fantastic device? I think that the um, the closest thing, uh, Ryan, because I look at this almost every day, look right. at home equipment, but you mentioned it as the Muse, but my only issue with the Muse is that the what you're training, in other words, when you put that on, they say, okay, make the birdies sing. Right. You'll be meditating. Well, they will not divulge because it's proprietary what exactly what are you changing in your brain that's making those birdies sound? Right. Because, because, you know, whatever the frequencies are that you're actually training um, might be good for one person, but not so good for another person. Mm. Um, but they, the Muse has partnered with another company in Tel Aviv that we're working with now where you can individualize the protocol. So in other words, you can say, well... Maybe this one isn't so good for you. We can alter the feedback signal so that you get this one. Right. And, you know, for the price, it is a, it's a decent piece of equipment. And as long as we can somewhat individualize it, in, in my opinion, it's the best one on the market now. There's like 10 big companies. Well, not 10, but somewhere between 5 and 10 big companies that are really working on this. Everybody wants to break through this meditation model and provide a home headset that can do this sort of thing and people are looking at individualizing it so i think over the next year or two you're going to see a lot of stuff popping up on the market i, I know a lot of software people and hardware people out here and, and there's, there's quite a bit happening lots of money in it too so. well here's a quick question about the muse that maybe you can answer because um, this is what i noticed about it mm-hmm. um i noticed that it, it has this um hmm, you put it on first and then it kind of takes an idea of what's going on in your head mm-hmm. and, and you go through the process and it, you know, as you mentioned, lets little birdies sing or gives you the, the readout afterwards. But what it seemed to me was, is that it was always starting at a new baseline. Like yeah. it, it never seemed, for example, if I had been meditating for a year and I put it on, on day 366, well now it's measuring my baseline from where I am now versus where I had been a, a year ago. And, I guess that's useful, but it seems like it would be a little more useful if we could actually see progress. Do you understand what I'm trying to yeah, describe? No, no, I do, and, and you're right. That's exactly what it's doing. It does a baseline every time you put it on your head. Um, so how, how do you? I mean, how, how how does one use it then to get a sense of oh, I 
I'm doing it better now. <laughs> if yeah, you just that, constantly that, have to do that. Yeah, that's the challenge. And there's two pieces to that. Um, one, yeah, you know, when I, when a client comes in, I will do a quantitative EEG, which is a, a brain map. You know, so mm -hmm. everything their brain is doing. Five thousand six hundred metrics are measured, and then I go back to that after they're done going through the, the treatment or training process, and say, oh look, this shifted, this shifted, this shifted. So that's, um, that is something obviously the muse is not uh, capable of doing. There's just uh, one electrode in there versus when you do a brain map, which has 19 electrodes. Right. The other thing too, and this is kind of hard for some of us to wrap our minds around. Lots of ch the changes you see in a person's brain are nonlinear. Okay. And that, you know, we all want to say, well, I want to see myself go from a score of six to seven to eight to nine to ten you know mm -hmm. then i know i'm doing better well guess what it doesn't always work that way mm -hmm. um and and largely it's because the brain is such an enormously complex electrical system so sometimes you just have to hang out in a space for a long enough time and then get some kind of subjective measure like am i doing better or am i just this is wishful thinking you know Am I my focus? Is my intent on my spiritual path? Are my behaviors more in line with what my intentions are? So that, frankly, is is the is the more important measure than anything you're going to see in the EEG. Right. You know, it's but we are we're you know especially Americans. Oh my gosh, we're very <laughs> linear, and we want to we want the I want to go from zero to ten as quick as possible. So. Right. Well, that, that leads me to my, my next question, which um, I, I didn't actually send you. It just came to me, so I apologize. <laughs> but um, the, the question is, um, when it comes to meditative states in the brain, um, you know, when I was, when I'd first gotten the muse and I was playing around with a little bit, um, I'd been meditating for a, a decent amount of time. And uh, I had gone through a, a period of time where I wasn't getting much sleep. And it was a very difficult time period. And I thought, well, I'm still meditating just fine. And then I popped the muse on and I, I looked at the readout afterwards and it was all over the map. And mm -hmm. so I started thinking to myself, well, sure, I definitely need more sleep, definitely need to be taking care of myself better. But it led me to this question. And that is, I understand that the brain is a reflection of uh, in a sense, uh, what our physical state of consciousness is, but is there possibilities of uh, it, a person experiencing, say, clear states of consciousness or, or clarity of awareness or uh, universal consciousness while their brain is then not necessarily showing that? Like, could they be engaged in something to where their brain has to act a certain way, but yet they are still within a state of, of clarity in that universal consciousness as you described. Does this question make sense? Absolutely. Um, and I, I'll give you two answers to that. Uh, the first answer is no. Your brain, it's like a mirror. And, you know, and, I, and, I, and a lot of people are, uh, have, have difficulty with this concept of, well, your mind is not, you know, we have uh, different ideas about the mind and the brain, uh, and the and where is the mind, so to speak? Mm -hmm. The brain is definitely the organ of the mind. So what you think, what we think on a second to second, even fraction of a second uh, basis, is going to reflect in the brain. Right. That these thoughts are are electrical in nature. They're between neurons. So if there is if there are shifts in states of consciousness, well, guess what? You have to see it in the brain. However, um, the, when you reach, you know, and, and some of this we just have to guess at unless we're in the, these states. When you, when you are like, a, you know, when you're God realized, you're in the background. You know, mm -hmm. your consciousness is, is identified with um, witnessing, not attached. Right. And however, when I, as I've mentioned, when I've mentioned people who have achieved that state, you still see it in the brain. You see this gamma activity that uh, is probably a reflection of that. So okay. I don't think we can separate the two out is the, is the short answer to the uh, question. Okay. Well, then let's say, for example, um, let's say we're, we're, we're dealing with an individual who 
often accesses this, this, this universal state of consciousness. And then we see them interacting with the world where they're uh, like Yogananda. I forget. I, I heard Mr. Davis say one time, he said, I, I, I'm not an angry person. I just have a fiery personality. Right. Mm -hmm. So if if let's just say Yogananda was in the middle of a a situation and had to act fiery to get his point across, Mm -hmm. um, would we, would we see any part of the brain, you know, related to something like anger or would it still in your mind kind of reflect that, that gamma state consistently? Probably both. Uh, And the anger may not be anger. It may just be activation of a certain area. Right. The temporal lobes, you know, above your ears there tend to be associated with emotion, emotional output. Um, there's a there's a very cool YouTube on as well. I can't remember the name of it. It's it's a on a, a mindfulness meditation, and they they did some research on a, a very a, a, you know a real prodigy mindful uh, fellow, and they were looked at the part of his brain associated with compassion, and it uh, the way the researchers described it is that part of his brain is almost in a permanent seizure. Hmm. Uh, it's so strong. Wow. So, um, you know, and that's all that particular style of uh, meditation is, is compassion meditation. Right. So it's these, these, these areas of our brain are not producing this activity. They're just like, you know, re- transmission talent, more or less. Right. Ah, okay. Um, so I'm going to take it just a little bit further. And, you know, I know we're reaching into speculative territory here. Um, but I've had interest in people who've had near-death experiences and these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm assuming that if, the, if they are being truthful and accurate, then if they are having an experience and they still have a sense of, of, of mind, yet maybe are considered to be maybe clinically brain dead, uh, where does that fit into all of this? Or is that even something we should be talking about right now? I think it, there's way too much um, theory and speculation about this. I, uh, Raymond Moody, the, the, the uh, uh, fellow who actually uh, came up with the term near-death experiences, and was, he's kind of the one who has um, uh, popularized this most, but I, I, he was here in Santa Barbara a couple of uh, years ago, and I went to meet him, and he talked about the shared crossing experiences, because one of the arguments about these near-death experiences, oh, it's just brain chemistry changes, and you know, you're just hallucinating and so on and so on and so on. But what Moody found was that there was a, a lot of reports from people, uh, doctors and nurses and loved ones and so on, who were in the same room as the dying people. And when they cross over, you know, what they say they cross over, uh, they would, they would have glimpses of what those people were experiencing. Mm-hmm. Of course, those people would come back and, you know, so who knows? So right. I'm, I'm sort of on the fence about a lot of this, uh, but, um, you know, it's very interesting to look at. And where is this? What is, what's really happening here? I think we, we just don't have enough information. Yet. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, well, then, you know, I really would like to share with people some things that could be helpful for them based on, I guess, what you might call neuro hacks. <laughs> so, you know, for example, in certain texts, it's recommended that when one is meditating, that by gently lifting the eyebrows, you know, that helps one deepen the experience or even s- smiling. Um, or, or do you have any insights into things like this and how it helps people meditate better? Absolutely. When you, um, I mean, this was discovered many years ago by Barbara Brown. She wrote a book, a uh, big book on biofeedback. <clears throat> and, so when you're meditating, your eyes are closed, and you 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 know if you you say raise your eyebrows, but what you're also doing is gently rolling your eyes up. Mm-hmm. You do that, you get a big burst of um, alpha activity in the back of the brain. Um, it just happens to correlate. So you know everything we do, um, everything we do, you know every thought we think, every um, engagement that we have with another person has some kind of correlate uh, in the brain and nervous system. That's why we have to be careful. Right. Um, but, you know, so when you meditate, and Roy would, uh, Roy would always say, you know, gently roll your eyes up. Uh, and if you want, you can imagine you're looking out into the distance through the center of your forehead. Steady gazing contributes to steady concentration. If your eyes float down, you tend to go into or at least get closer to to the possibility of falling into subconscious states. And we found that that's very true. Hmm. So, um, you know, those little keys that we've 
we've um, we've gotten uh, certainly um, our our verifiable um, breath awareness. Um, you know, being aware of the flow of of the breath in and out of the nostrils, feeling the cool as we inhale, the warmth as we exhale. These are these things are triggering um, uh, specific parts of the brain, and in particular, the Kriya Yoga Pranayama. There are nerves in the back of the throat that cause yeah. different brain regions. I won't get too technical here, but there's no doubt that it, it's helping to access uh, different areas of the brain. And uh, what I like to think about it, a lot of it is access, helping us access, access uh, the brain stem and the medulla, which uh, in yoga is is uh, you know called the mouth of God. So it's like we're we're going back to the source of this life force with some of these techniques, which is what the whole intention of them happens to be anyway. Right. And with the, with the Kriya Pranayama, you mentioned the, um, the nerves in the back of the throat then. In Kriya Pranayama, it's recommended, at least in the beginning, to breathe a certain way with the mouth open. But in time, it's okay to breathe with the mouth shut. So are you saying, or would it be better if people kept the, the mouth open practice? Or does it matter as long as you're just constricting the throat when you do the breathing? Right. It doesn't matter as long as you're getting that sensation at the back of the throat. Um, and, it, and usually in the beginning, you need your mouth open so you really feel it. Right. Okay. Hmm. What about um, alternate nostril breathing? Have you seen anything with that that seems to be particularly helpful? Yeah, there, there, it appears. Um, I haven't, you know, there's, there's been some research on it. So some of this is hypothetical, but it would appear that it helps balance the um, the left and right hemispheres of the brain and also the autonomic nervous system because one side is the ida and the other side the pingala. And so, it, it you know, we say that's masculine and feminine, but it's also sympathetic and parasympathetic respectively. Mm. So you do, um, and then, of course, there's certain techniques where you focus more on one side than the other and you'll find, oh, that's very calming or, oh, that's more invigorating. Right. Well, it really has to do with that, with these two portions of the nervous system. So um, I, I think alternate nostril breathing is, uh, and personally, I think it's an essential um, preparatory technique when you first start meditating because it, it's, it rapidly starts to balance the autonomics. And as I said, I don't know, 30 minutes ago, that is a key to um, creating a foundation for more advanced states of meditation. Right. Hmm. Okay. Um well, geez, I'm so glad I'm getting all these answers. So another question then would be related to uh, a long time ago, I wrote to you asking about eating onions and garlic. <laughs> and and the reason I wrote to you, <laughs> well, the, re- the reason I wrote to you was because every time I would eat onions and garlic, I would experience, I think it's called a hypnagogic paralysis. Oh, my goodness. And, um, and I had a dream one time because it would happen every time I would eat, like, say, uh, an Indian meal for lunch. Yeah. And and since I work for myself, I would sometimes take a nap after lunch, and I would wake up. My mind would be awake, but my body would be paralyzed. Yeah. And I had this dream one time because it was very disconcerting that I was I was standing right beside uh, Mr. Davis, and he's much taller than me. So I asked him, "What do I do?" And in the in the dream, he looked down at me and he said, "You know what to do." Mm-hmm. And then. I knew what I had to do was to chant Om at my uh, the frontal regions of the brain, the spiritual eye center, mm-hmm. and, I, and I popped right out of it. And now, anytime that happens, I bring my awareness to the frontal regions of the brain when this occurs, and I wake right up. Yeah. So my first question is, um, what is it about onions and garlic that mm-hmm. might cause this, uh, if there is anything? And if so... Um, what are your thoughts on why bringing awareness to the frontal regions of the brain would allow it to, to end so quickly? Okay. Well, you, you, onions and garlic, you know, and, and Ayurveda are a little tomasic. Mm-hmm. Um, they also happen to be high sulfur content. Okay. And particular methionine, which is an amino acid. And, you know, people who tend towards sleep paralysis and uh, night terrors and other sleep disorders uh, can have a little chemistry that um, that is, is off a little bit, so they can react to certain amino acids and certain foods that way. Okay. You just have to be careful about that, um, you know, because that's what yoga nidra is, mm-hmm. sleep, sleep, mind awake, body sleep, and, and as you say, it can be quite scary. Right. Uh, 
to because you're you're paralyzed for all intents and purposes. Uh, so you you just have to be be careful with that. But it also um, can indicate the ability to go deep in meditation, um, or at least the proclivity to. Mm-hmm. But, but it is it is a deeper uh, a way. You know, if you were, you were to say higher and deeper parts of the brain, that's sort of like your your brain stem is still aware and conscious while your cortex is sound asleep. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the reason, because the cortex has the sensory motor strips in it. So the sensory motor strips enable you to use your senses for input and then you use your motor ability for output. So all the fu- motor output functions of the body. Well, yes, when you're in that state, Guess what? That part of your brain is paralyzed. But right. the part of your brain where you have some conscious awareness is watching the whole thing. Uh-huh. So there's a disconnection that happens there. You know, I don't know if you, uh, Swami Kriyananda in one of his books, I can't remember which, he mentions that he went through that stage very consciously for a long time. He had to figure out how to use his legs, how to walk. Uh-huh. Like everything was disconnected. Right. But, when you when you hit that state, as you discover, to come out of that state is is an activation. I guess where the main place to activate your brain is in the frontal lobes. Mm. So putting your attention there in the prefrontal lobes or even the higher brain is 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 sort of self directed neuroplasticity. You're telling you're telling that area of the brain to wake up, wake up the cortex, so that I can move away from this paralysis. Um, huh. And it, it's a it 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 can be considered um, an activation issue. Uh, sometimes we will see this problem with um, children or adults who have attention deficit disorder. So it's really a, an activation problem. The brain is having some difficulty activating certain areas or maintaining activation uh, as it should be. So um, you know you, you but with you anyway you obviously uh, intuitively. Um, figured out how to get through that, so that's good. Well, it is, it is useful. I mean, once uh, once I got the hang of it, like you were describing, it you can stay there and you know practice yoga nidra as you're describing. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I was thinking that uh, then this is not the reason that most people shouldn't eat onions and garlic on the meditative path because I thought that was the reason. <laughs> I thought it well, affected everybody that way. <laughs> well, that's probably individual to you. Um, okay. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Well, does yoga, or excuse me, does um, does onions and garlic tend to make uh, other individuals sleepy as well? Because that's one of the other things that I've personally experienced. I can't really meditate. It's like it just, yeah, it's harder. They're a little tamasic, but um, you know, you may want to, you know, this has to do with some of the um, again the sulfur-based amino acids. Okay. I'll never forget one time. Uh, uh, Roy encouraged me to go down to the Conyers Monastery. It's a beautiful Benedictine monastery in um, in South Georgia, mid to South Georgia. And I went down there and I initiated a few of the monks in the Creo. It was a lot of fun. And one day, one of them asked me some dietary recommendations, and uh, they were vegetarian, of course. And um, I didn't mention uh, uh, onions and garlic, but I did mention ginseng. Hmm. That was definitely the wrong recommendation. Ah. You know, it absolutely was a Right. These foods can have very strong effects, and in, you know, there's many yogis who say don't eat onions and garlic because they do tend to have this tamasic feature. Right. Hmm. Okay. Well, I know that you know you're you're a very busy individual, and our time is running short here. So I only have a few more questions for you. Uh, number one, in uh, with the Kriya Yoga practice, oftentimes there is this recommendation to learn how to see this inner light uh, when you're meditating with your eyes closed, and to also hear you know what's called the the Om vibration or the the, the pranava, and um, you know, in my experience, it happened almost by accident in that I recognized that, number one, my body needs to be as relaxed as possible, yet I also internally have to be as internally alert as possible. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to what you understand about how the nervous system and brain works, what kind of general advice would you give to people to 
be able to, again, let their body be as relaxed as possible, yet also remain as alert as possible without falling asleep. Mm. Well, and posture, obviously, is, is one of the most important factors. Um, I usually encourage people uh, not to sit on the floor when they first start to meditate, but to sit up straight in a chair with their uh, soles of their feet flat on the floor. Okay. And if they can, without hurting their back, you know, move their back away from the back of the chair. Um, again, different people are going to have, uh, you know, some people can't fall asleep if they try, but like, <laughs> other people, boom, they go right out. Right. So posture is very important. And then, the, and then where you have your eyes, where your focus is and so on, all important things. And generally, if, if I'm teaching light and sound meditation, you know, uh, the darker the room, the better. Sometimes we'll, we'll even use eye masks, uh, sometimes even earplugs, anything that really blocks out external, um, you know, stimulation helps us to, you know, obviously helps us to internalize and experience what's going on inside. Right. And um, when it comes to being able to, to see that light or, or hear that sound, uh, have you been able to record anything on your devices about what's going on in the brain when that's no, happening? No, not, not yet. I, know I haven't looked, uh, to be honest with you. But, um, you know, if it's really occurring in the visual cortex, which is in the back of the brain, right. you might see something. I don't know. It's hard. I need... I would need very, very expensive equipment to do some of that. <laughs> gotcha. I understand. Okay. Um, and then my final question would be, since you've had a lot of experience, both with the science of it and also the art and the practice of it, and you know, a lifetime of, of commitment to uh, Kriya Yoga and this study, um, what advice would you give um, to meditators to keep their practice fresh, to keep their practice alive, so that they're able to to really go go deep for the duration of the time that they have. Um, well, it really comes down to the commitment and and to the you know the intensity of the individual. Uh, there, there's there's no other way that I know of other than you know what and 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 this is the problem you know I know you run into this too, Ryan. Oh, I've tried to meditate. I just can't do it. Right. Well, you know, as Roy would say, just do it. Um, <laughs> so, so it's 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 making that time commitment on a daily basis to 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 do our you know spiritual studies, and then whether or not it, our mind is cooperating, just sit there for the allotted amount of time, because eventually everyone learns that the mind will will calm and quiet down. You just have to do it. There's no secret to getting there. So I think it's I think it's just fairly simple. Okay, so just essentially stay in the course. Stay the course. Excellent, great. All right, Marty. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to do this, and uh, it's just been wonderful talking to you. So thank you. Yeah, my pleasure, uh, Ryan, and um, I, hope, I hope to see you soon. Yeah, you, you be well. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Bye. This episode of the Kriya Yoga podcast was made possible by donations from Kriya Yoga apprenticeship students and supporters of our Patreon community at www.patreon.com forward slash Kriya Yoga.